Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, Democratic political consultant Bill Wong knows his way around the corridors of power in Sacramento. For decades, he's advised Democratic leaders on a wide range of issues, helping them win historic supermajorities in both houses of the legislature. He's also, by the way, helped candidates like Jerry Brown. Are there any candidates like Jerry Brown? I don't know. But he helped him win support from the Asian American communities and to mobilize organized labor on behalf of Democratic causes and candidates. Bill Wong announced he was stepping down as chief political consultant to Assembly Democrats and Speaker Anthony Rendon. We're going to talk with him about what retirement looks like and uh, how that's going to change his life. But first, Marisa, let's talk about what everyone's talking about, sort of, which is the price of gas. It is, wow, I spent like 70 bucks a few days ago to fill up my tank. Uh, it's approaching six bucks in California. And there are several proposals floating around in Sacramento to give some kind of relief or alleged relief to uh, uh, people uh, by giving them some money because right. the state has a lot of that. Assembly Democrats today proposed a $400 uh, rebate uh, to get money into the hands of consumers to ease some of that pain. Uh, and there's different ways to go about it. Um, and, you know, there's some criticism of what Assembly Dems are, are, are proposing. We'll talk to our guest about that. But how about you? How much are you paying for gas? <laughs> a lot, although we do have a hybrid at least. Okay. But it's, a, you know. It's a bigger hybrid because I got all those kids. You will still get a rebate check. And there's some debate about that. Yeah. I mean, and this is what I think is interesting is this is not just California debate, right? I mean, our gas is higher here than in most places. I always choke a little when I hear the national average. Are you saying the governor isn't responsible for the price of gas? Uh, Nor is... Most politicians. However, um, what we're hearing this debate kind of center around is things like gas tax holidays. And I I think from a policy point of view, it makes sense that what we've seen here in California is both the governor and Democrats in in the legislature, as you said this week, you know, propose slightly different variations of the same idea, which is that it shouldn't actually be any sort of 
relief tied to the actual gas tax. And that's, you know, they'll argue for two reasons. One is that there's no guarantee that oil companies pass that on to consumers. We've already seen the price of oil falling pretty no, dramatically it, in the past week. And yet it's not and, showing up. And in, in fact, they say on calls with uh, investors that they're most looking out for their shareholders and right. they want the profits. That's, I mean, that's, that's part of their that's, that's fiduciary duty. Um, but all, the other problem is that if you suspend both the federal and state gas taxes, that punches a huge hole in infrastructure budgets, which actually over time will probably increase costs for drivers because, I mean, how many times have you gotten like a, a nail or a pothole blowing out a tire? Totally. And then Although suddenly... there is all this federal money, you could say, coming for infrastructure. Right. But, but uh... it's this has all been budgeted. So I think it's kind of fascinating that what we see right now is Democrats trying to kind of, you know, th- thread the needle in a different way, saying, look, we get it. We need relief. Consumers are feeling inflation, not just at the gas pump. So let's just put money back in their pockets. Uh, I think what Republicans, their strongest kind of argument is that th- they want to see it done now. Yeah. And I think that that's... That makes sense because people are feeling the pain now. Right. Although I think today when Assembly Democrats rolled their plan out, they said we'd like to get it done by the spring, which, of course, would require a supermajority. We'll see if they can get that done. Uh, But the other thing is, you know, the governor in his State of the State address a few weeks ago talked or I guess it was a week or two ago, talked about (laughs) how it's been years, it seems, uh, but uh, proposed more targeted refunds that would go to drivers. Right. um, And that is not what the Assembly Dems are proposing. Uh, You know, they want it to be broad based, um, but we'll see. I mean, there is a lot of money. There is a big surplus. And there's this thing which we don't have to talk about, but this GAN limit. um, And this would be one way to get some money back to taxpayers and avoid uh, hitting the GAN limit, uh, which would restrict the budget in other ways. Yeah. And I mean, even as Republicans say they still want to see a gas tax holiday here, I would be surprised if you couldn't get some Republicans on board. I mean, they. this has always been an argument that if we have a surplus, you should put money back in the pockets of consumers. And that is an argument Republicans have made far below, you know, before inflation started hitting people. So I, I think that there's a path there. I think, well, again, you know, not to be cliche, but the devil's in the details. And like, what is it that the governor is specifically concerned about? Is there a reason he was looking at a longer timeline? That's all going to get fleshed out in the coming weeks. Well, and, you know, it's interesting, too. I think California is the only oil producing state that does not tax oil as it comes out of the ground. And there have been a couple ballot measures that voters have rejected. Of course, the oil industry spent uh, heavily to defeat those ballot measures. If that were on the ballot in the fall, it might have a different reception. Uh, but, you know, there are there. I, I do find that a little odd. And, of course, there are some, you know, Democrats who are supported. They're more moderate, business-friendly Dems who, you know, don't necessarily want to do that either. Uh, but uh, we're going to hear a big debate in the coming weeks about the gas tax. And you had the governor on a forum, we should mention, this week uh, talking about his care court Another proposal. thing people are concerned about. Yeah, and another thing that Republicans may embrace, uh, this idea of compelling more people into treatment uh, at the county level, the local level, if caregivers, family, the courts and others uh, say, you know, this is, that's the only solution or the best solution for this person. And we, we've all seen it, you know, so many times people right. on the streets who just are, you feel should not be there because they're a danger to themselves and they're scary or could hurt somebody. Yeah. And I mean, um, you know, Newsom joined us Always great to hear directly from the governor at the top of the hour um, and, and, you know, laid out what he's already laid out, which, again, we're still waiting for some details around. But I think what's interesting is he is going around the state talking to counties and other folks who are involved in this kind of wraparound system around mental health, substance abuse and homelessness. Um, And I think that, you know, as much as we're all eager to hear all the details, I think it makes sense that he's going out and actually listening to the people who are going to be directly impacted. I'll just say, Scott, quickly, I mean, 
again, always love to talk to the governor. Call us anytime. We'd love to get him back on Political Breakdown. But what was most compelling to me was hearing directly from family members. We had several parents call in talking about what they have gone through trying to help their own children who, you know, and I think it really underscores the challenge that some of the folks who are concerned about this proposal have, which is like, you know, you can be worried about civil liberties, but what's happening right now isn't compassionate. Yeah, it really isn't. And Newsom's been saying that for many years, going all the way back to when he was uh, he was mayor or running for mayor, actually. But, you know, the other thing to remember, and this is a concern as well, is whatever gets passed and enacted is going to get put on top of the current mental health system that we have, which is inadequate in so many ways. I mean, where are these folks going to get the treatment? Where are the treatment beds? And I think that's a question a lot of local governments are worried about because suddenly the problem is going to be punted to them. And while they may be able to handle it better, they can only do it with, you know, resources. Yeah. I think what Newsom administration would say is we've given you all a lot of resources. And I do think part of this is not just about compelling people into treatment, but compelling counties to spend that money wisely and and do the work they need to do. Yeah, exactly. All right. Before we go to Bill Wong. Yeah. Just want to say real quickly some news today that, uh, you know, I think it will affect all of us uh, who work in the realm of politics, policy, and journalism. Mark Baldessari, the longtime CEO and pollster with the Public Policy Institute of California, PPIC, announced he's going to be stepping down at the end of the year. Boy, they have a, a ream of research that they have provided for all of us, and uh, it's going to be... And he's just a nice guy. He is an incredibly nice man, and uh, he's earned uh, yes. a retirement, <laughs> as has our guest, we perhaps. We still might call him back, just like we're calling Bill Wong up from retirement, to, to pundicize. So, uh, I'm betting... Mark Mark, thank you for everything you've done, and and we're looking forward to the rest of this year because I think he said he'd retire at the end End of of the year. Exactly. All right. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be joined by veteran Democratic consultant Bill Wong. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And joining us now is Bill Wong. He's been a fixture around the state capitol for decades, helping Democrats win supermajorities in the Assembly and Senate, and helping the party, by the way, reach out to voters in the Asian American API communities throughout California. And he has announced he's leaving his job as chief political consultant to Assembly Dems. Bill Wong, welcome to the breakdown. And I guess congratulations on getting a break. Thanks for having me. It's been 35 years, so it's been a long time coming. And I see a shark hanging on the wall behind you. <laughs> is that yeah. uh, is that emblematic of anything? Uh, it's actually a, a swordfish. Oh, it's a swordfish. Yeah, I yeah. didn't see the, the, yeah. the top of his snout. Yeah. Okay, forget that question. 
gas tax. Talk to us. It was you know your your team, the Assembly Dems, who rolled out this uh, four hundred dollar rebate idea today. Um, what's the thinking there, and 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 why that, and not say means testing it and focusing it more on people of color, low income people? Um. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I retired Friday. So <laughs> you have nothing to do with this. Come on, plausible deniability. <laughs> exactly. But you know, I think that that it's a smart move. I think you know it, it's also the responsible move. Like you mentioned before, if we did a, uh, a suspension of the gas tax, it has like so many different um, unintended consequences that are out there, and I think that. Um, you know, the Republicans just thought that, you know, it was it was an easy shot at the, the Democrats to try this stunt without looking at the long term um, impacts of what it's going to do to bridges and roads and infrastructure and construction jobs. You know, it's the, the Republicans are kind of like that uncle that comes by and promises to take your kids to Disneyland on a school day. And you're like, well, knowing you know, they can't go. <laughs> right. Knowing that they can't go. And then, you know, you get blamed for being like the bad parents. And, you know, this is the cool uncle. You know, so I think that the Democrats have always you know, particularly when you brought up the gain limit, you know, are, are obligated to give uh, taxpayers a rebate. And this is the, the best way of doing it and uh, the most responsible way of doing it without hurting public safety and, and public infrastructure projects. So, I mean, this is clearly a huge political moment, right? The inflation, what's happening in Ukraine, how that's affecting gas prices. And, you know, Republicans are looking to seize on it. I mean, just this week, they put up this gas tax rebate for a vote, you know, forcing Democrats to go on the record against it. What's the politics of that? Like, how do you think Democrats should view that? And do you think that this is a good answer to that type of, you know, political maneuvering by the other side? Um, I think it's great. You know, uh, I, one, I, I think it's the most responsible way of getting, uh, you know, relief back to California taxpayers and consumers uh, when they need it in the time of inflation and, and uncertainty. But I do think that it provides a lot of political peril for the Republicans, because if they don't vote for it, we'll definitely have the resources to hurt them on it at the ballot in November. But if they do vote for it, then they're just hypocrites, um, you know, because, you know, they're, they're one criticizing that the Democrats aren't don't have a strong agenda, but then they're voting to support the Democratic proposed uh, rebates to the to the taxpayers. Well, and you know, as they say, timing is everything. And if the the repeal of the gas tax increase, which was on the ballot and defeated a couple of years ago, were on the ballot in November, you'd probably have a very very different outcome, right? Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that um, I don't know that that this is a challenging one for Democrats more nationally than in California because of the things we're talking about. I mean, I saw the White House tweeting out, you know, these graphics showing, well, the the price of a you know barrel of oil has gone down, but your, you know, sticker is still the same at the pump. And like, I don't know, does that really matter to voters or do they just want relief? Oh, I think it does matter. I think I think they do want relief. But I also think that, you know, one of the the the, the prior weaknesses of Democratic Party has not been able to to um, to express fully that the the narrative that 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 is the truth out there is that there's a lot of corporate price gouging that's going on. Um, if I was if I was still in my job, probably what I would have uh, advised is that we should have statewide hearings on oil gas price gouging and you know call them on the carpet for why barrel prices are going down while prices are staying up. And, you know, making sure that every community across California knows that this is to, to benefit these corporations and their shareholders and at the expense of, of uh, ordinary working Californians. Well, you know, Bill, we like to uh, get into folks' background. And you, as you said, you've been uh, working at the Capitol for 
35 years. Um, and I think you went to UC Davis. You studied in pol- uh, political science and Asian American studies. Did you expect when you were a, a young man that you were going to end up doing the kind of thing that you, you've done for so many decades now? Uh, I had no idea. And, and in, in, in full disclosure, I started out as an engineering major. Oh. I failed calculus three times <laughs> and I was advised that I needed to uh, get out. So I went through the course catalog to look for the major with the least amount of units to graduate. And, lo and, and least behold, math. Was, yeah. And, and the least amount of math. Uh, and it was political science. So here I am. <laughs> wow. Did that was that the beginning of something and like the actual study of it? And how'd your family react to is my second question. I bet they wanted you to be an engineer, right? They did. And, you know, I, I carry the, the unfortunate burden of being the only Asian on earth bad at math. Uh, <laughs> That's not so. true. You're not the only <laughs> one. No, no, no. <laughs> but like, is that did you kind of get the bug studying it or was it later? Uh, it, it, well, actually what really started it was, um, I was a minor in Asian American studies and I realized all of these, the, uh, civil rights injustices that occurred, um, uh, being a minor in, in ethnic studies required that I spent time learning about Latino history and African American history and understanding that there, there is a very strong through line about the injustices that occur in a society and the ways to, uh, to correct them undoubtedly and, and invariably lead through the world of politics. What did you learn studying the history of Latinos and black uh, Americans and, and others other than Asian Americans? Did you, were you surprised by what you found out? Um, I, w- I was surprised by how similar the, the, the experiences lines, were. They were like different uh, actual things, but there, there were very similarities. And, you know, basically I was at a presentation last night that um, you know, we were just the, the victims of the month, you know, uh, at one point in time as African-Americans, at one point in time as Latinos, you know, the conversation we had was, you know, is the current state of AAPI hate and racism our Prop 187 moment or our uh, 16th Street Baptist Church moment that is going to ignite uh, a level of political activism that has never been seen in this nation? And maybe we should just say real quickly for those who weren't around that uh, Prop 187 on the ballot, 1994, anti-immigrant, uh, and really ignited the Latino community. Many people in the legislature and in local politics now who are Latino got into politics through 187. I want to ask, because you've worked a lot in recent years around combating AAPI hate, but also just historically in trying to bring more Asian Americans into the political sphere. I imagine uh, when you got there, there was not a ton of Asian American lawmakers. I was looking back. It looks like the AAPI caucus started in 2001 with just three members. But even before that, I mean, was what was your experience like growing up Asian American? Did you feel the bullying that we hear about? Did you feel uh, what like what of that have you carried with you into this political realm? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, a lot. Like I grew up in a predominantly white community. I grew up in Marysville, which is about 45 minutes north of here. So not a lot of I mean, there, there were some Asians or some Chinese Americans that had had been there, but um, it wasn't a lot. And um you know, as a rural area. So, so there was a lot of racism. I don't think that it was necessarily something that, that was that well thought out. It was just something that existed back then. And, and there's a lot of it that I just suppressed, you know, like many other Asian Americans just pretended it didn't happen and, you know, tried to be a, a model minority. And then I realized that, um, you know, when, when Vincent Chin was killed in Detroit, that that model minority 
perspective is 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 to our detriment and and uh, a way to control our community. So that's when I got active on campus politics. That's why you know I took ethnic studies. Um, all those types of things. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. We're talking with Democratic consultant Bill Wong. And I want to ask you that, you know, I think in in some ways, Asian American API voters are somewhat swing voters uh, on some issues. They maybe are a little, and this is, of course, generalizing, but a little more conservative on some things, more pro-business perhaps than some Democrats. And we're seeing, especially like in Orange County, a couple of, uh, you know, Republicans who picked up Two congressional seats, Michelle Steele and Young Kim. What do you make of that? I mean, that was that's very good recruitment for one thing on the part of the Republican Party. Do you see them, you know, continuing to make inroads like that? Uh, I, I think that is definitely part of their strategy. I mean, they recruited Andrew Doe, who's an Orange County supervisor, to run against Fiona Ma, and um, they have Lan He Chen, who's running for state controller. So, I mean, it is a very definite play toward a community that hasn't really gelled. Uh, um, from a kind of political personality standpoint. But I also think that it's it's a prophylactic action for them to misdirect um, the narrative away from the the inflammatory rhetoric that the Republican Party engaged in that has resulted us in the current epidemic of hate crimes that is afflicting our community. Yeah. How do you see, I mean, the Asian American electorate, which, again, is super diverse to Scott's point, right? Um, but do you think that Democrats are, you know, have better sort of shot at making inroads with younger voters? Um, is it depending on where, you know, I, I mean, there's obviously immigrants, people have been here for a long time, but like, how do those different communities kind of play for the Democratic base? Well, I think we're already there. I mean, like 46% of the uh, AAPI voters in California are Democrats, another 22% or 20, no, 37% are declined to state, and then only 22% are Republicans. So I think that they've already made their statement. I mean, we're not necessarily at the numbers that, you know, the Latinos are where they're kind of closer to 60 or African-Americans are closer to 90. And I think that that's why, you know, when I said the, the Prop 187 moment or the, the, the 16th Street Baptist Church moment where, you know, if we have numbers in the 80s or 90s, that sends a definitive message to the Republican establishment that you're not going to get away with, you know, vilifying us in the public and using it, you know, and weaponizing that that type of, uh, uh, you know, racism uh, to, to win, win seats. Yeah. You, uh, of course, announced just recently you were stepping down. You had been a chief advisor to the speaker, Anthony Rendon. And, you know, he's faced some criticism over the years, as all speakers do. And you've been you and others have defended him. One of the things is that he is not maybe as hands on uh, as some speakers. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts? How does he differ as as uh, the assembly leader from people like Willie Brown, of course, the Ayatollah of the assembly uh, or John Perez, that sort of thing, those sort of folks? Um, you know, everybody has to bring their own personality to the speakership. And I think that, you know, and I, I was there when it all came together and it was very clear that the, the membership at the time, this class of 2012, wanted a different style of speakership. I mean, they weren't here when Willie Brown was here, so they didn't really know what that was like. Um, but they had been through uh, several iterations of short-term speakers and, um, you know, I think that one of the, the, the big complaints uh, just generically was that committee chair, that that was too centralized previously. Yeah. Um, and that was his commitment. And that's also his personality. I mean, it's, 
when you really look at the record of accomplishments for this speaker, you know, first state to pass a $15 minimum wage, you know, global leader in climate change and greenhouse gas reduction, toughest anti-tobacco laws in the land, toughest anti-gun laws in the land, you know, pay equity, the you know largest number of women chairs ever appointed uh, to chair assembly committees, um, overtime pay for farm workers, the only state in the nation to have overtime pay for, for farm workers. I mean, if you look at the record, he has been a transformative speaker without all of the ego or the, the, the baggage that comes with, you know, what people typically hate about politics. I mean, in fact, I'm sure that you as, as journalists see it every day of how he kind of shies away from, uh, you know, uh, a public presence. And then he tends to uh, the day-to-day operations of his caucus, which is what the caucus was asking for when he became speaker. Yeah. Of course, building the supermajority that you helped build is a huge win for Democrats, but it also comes with downsides, like some of the criticism we're talking about here, right? It is a big tent in Sacramento. You do have a really sort of wide range of policy viewpoints and and, and political viewpoints within the Democratic uh, caucus. Can you just talk about... I mean, first of all, I guess how you built that, because, you know, again, if you're running in the Central Valley versus Los Angeles County, you have to be a different type of Democrat. Yeah, I think, you know, the the foundation of it was to find candidates that reflected their communities. And that is, in essence, the democratic process. I mean, I think that a lot of people like to nationalize the message. But what we took on was a very bespoke um, approach to finding candidates um, for our races. And we were going into the 2018 cycle feeling that it was going to be a low turnout a gubernatorial election. It was after the disaster of 2016 when Trump took office. So we spent a lot of time looking for the right candidates. I think the best example is Cotty Petrie Norris, who, you know, if you were ever to Google like, you know, Laguna Beach, she would be the photo that you would see there. And, you know, she had, when she entered that race, it was a nine point Republican advantage. And we took that seat, um, and that that was a, a tremendous opportunity for us to 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 do that. Um, in in uh, other cases, it was ironically math. Like for example, Tasha Burton Horvath, uh, we realized that there were seven Republican candidates and two Democratic candidates. So we set up a situation where uh, we thought we could lock out um, the Republicans by getting the two Democrats into the runoff. And then once that happened, we didn't care. And that was a seat that had never been represented by a Democrat ever. In, in uh, North San Diego County. If you care about good government and taking the politics out of it a little bit, wouldn't, couldn't you argue that a mixed government where the parties have to talk to each other and uh, sort of compromise and adopt each other's ideas, isn't that better in some ways for the people they're governing? Oh, absolutely. I've, I've got a, a number of respected Republican friends. I came from the era where Ken Maddie. Uh, was, you know, a Republican leader. And, and those types of conversations happened all the time. But um, I unfortunately feel that, you know, we are not in that era of, of politics. I mean, I think Chad Mays tried it and he tried it valiantly, but it didn't work. And now you have uh, you have the, the vitriol that's coming from Kevin Kiley and, and uh, James Gallagher. So, you know, I think that we came to realization that, you know, there was not going to be peace in our time. So, we decided to, you know, make them irrelevant. Do you feel like 
there's almost two parties within the Democratic Party ever, like at least there's on certain probably issues. probably like 15. Yeah, right? <laughs> but I mean, in terms of what Scott's talking about, it was like that that positive tension of sort of push and pull. Um, I mean, are there any sort of like policy areas where you see that that's actually happened, but just among the Democratic caucus? Yeah, but I also think that it's like a giant box of Legos. You know, there, there are times when, you know, um, you know, say Petrie Norris, you know, because she represented Orange County had to be to the right of the issue, but on environmental issues, she could lean hard to the left, mm-hmm. you know, on women's issues, she could lean hard to the left on, on issues. Um, similarly, there are, um, you know, other, uh, Democrats who may, may have a, uh, more support for fossil fuels, but then they're the ones who put up the votes for farm worker overtime. So, you know, it just gives you a more math to play with, to get to the majorities you need to pass uh, legislation. Yeah. I want to ask you a question about the 2022 elections. We're not too far from the June primary and then, of course, on to November. What, you know, in the legislature, there's an extraordinary number of vacancies, people leaving office before the end of their term, getting appointed to other jobs or just retiring uh, and not running for reelection. What, what do you see as the landscape for, for Democrats? And, you know, where are the sort of landmines that they have to avoid stepping on between now and November? Well, I mean, one one of the reasons why I decided to retire a little bit early was that we came out of because everyone else was yeah, because <laughs> everybody else was yes yeah I mean I I definitely think the pandemic pandemic gives you kind of an interesting reference point for uh, personal decisions, but we came out of redistricting with sixty seats that Gavin Newsom won in 2018 by 55 percent or more, which is probably the benchmark for a safe Democratic seat. So I really felt that you know the Democratic supermajority is. Uh, not at all at risk, and that you know they'll be able to continue to work on policies that um, that are important to the people of California. And if you look at California's, I, I think I made this this comment to to somebody else that you know when seventy percent of your pie is apple, you're going to cut a slice of apple pie. Um, and I you know I think that that's that's how the legislature kind of plays out. Now it's going to have a lot of different perspectives, and I think that that's all all very healthy. I think the interesting thing about it is is that. I don't think a lot of people were prepared for the early retirement. So you've got a lot of candidates that were not necessarily prepared to serve in office. They ended up running for office because it's going to be an opportunity that they can't, you know, uh, miss out on. But they're also, when I talked to a lot of candidates, they really were not, not really ready for what it meant to be running from city council to an assembly race. All right. Real quick. You ever think about running yourself? Real quick. You ever think of being a candidate? Oh, no, no, never, never. You're going to run from office. Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much, Bill Wong. And uh, congratulations. Yeah, congrats. And hope it all goes well in the next chapter. That'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It is a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Jim Bennett. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at M Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time, everybody. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.